this morning, um, after many, many months and many wonderful interruptions, we're, we're coming to the end of our series on the Apostles' Creed. And at the outset of this series, um, it's a long time ago, but I raised a few kind of relevancy questions, like how, like is, what is the relevance of, of this to the life of a believer, to the life of our church? What's the relevance of theology to the life of, of a Christian? And do we really need to affirm our belief in all, in all of this, in all these words um, that the creed contains? Um, and what is the relevancy of this particular ancient document, like this this particular document, to our late modern world? Um, has has the world sort of not moved on? This is a very old document. Hasn't science debunked some of these claims? I also raised the question of whether creeds like this one, one matter, given that we have the Bible and the Holy Spirit. Do we need a creed like this when we've got the Holy Spirit and we've got the Bible? Um, surely it's just a curious, a, a curio of the ancient church, um, something that's interesting, but does it actually add anything to our Christian discipleship? Um, or aren't there more contemporary articulations of Christian belief that uh, eclipse this, this old relic? And finally, I, I raised the question uh, around the nature of, of what it means to join in with the chorus of the church, the whole church. So to say, I believe all of this, um, when if we're really honest with ourselves, we probably don't even really understand all of it. You know, we've been, we've been plumbing the depths of it a little bit, but we also recognize that there's more to this than we even understand. And yet we join our voice and say, I believe. How does that work? Um, when we don't really know what we're saying that we believe. So I hope through through the months and that we've been working through this series that um, we've managed to address some of the some of these questions. I, I hope that we've been able to show that that our theology, that is what we believe, um, what we believe about God, has a huge effect on our daily life as Christians. For instance, if we believe that God is approachable, or uh, then then that changes everything. If we believe that God's far off, then that changes everything. Our answer to that question about God's nearness or, or approachability um, will drastically change the way we pray. It'll change the way we uh, think about the concerns of daily life and our ways of navigating them. If God is absent, if God is far away, then it's all up to us to navigate life. It's all up to us to, to chart the course every day. Um, but if God is present, then every moment becomes an opportunity to inquire of what he's doing, to partner with him, to um, request his guidance, to request his peace and his empowering presence. And likewise, if we believe that Jesus is, you know, in, in addition, totally divine, but also fully human, totally human like us, in his thoughts, in his feelings, in his uh, embodied life, and if we believe that he's been raised totally human, like us, with a human mind and a human heart and a human will, um, then we will consider the destiny and purpose of our lives quite differently, of our material life, of our bodies quite differently, if we believe these things. Um, if we believe that Jesus has only adopted sort of these aspects of humanity in a, in a temporary way and then sort of discarded them on the way back to the Father, then we'll have a pretty strange theology of material life of our bodies. We'll think that our bodies are meaningless and can be disregarded as well. 
So all of this impacts our, our life, our real life theology. And again, if we think of the church as just a, a club that we belong to, like a, like a Facebook group of, of Jesus friends, um, then we're going to have a pretty casual relationship with church. We're going to have a pretty shallow relationship with each other probably. But if we believe that the church is the living expression of the gospel, if we believe it is the sign of the new creation, the beachhead of new creation, that's animated and shaped and guided by the Spirit of God, then our relationship to church will be very different. It will, our relationship to one another will be very different. So we've been unapologetically theological over the last few months because this stuff matters. And um, we've also been unapolog unapologetically ecumenical in that we're joining with the whole church. This is why the Apostles' Creed is really significant, is that um, it's something that the whole church embraces. Baptists and Catholics and Anglicans and Methodists and uh, Moravians and all, all sorts of uh, different denominations, Pentecostals, Presbyterians, we all are on, literally on the same page when we're with the creed. And that's powerful. So uh, there's lots, you know, um, it, you know even the, the early church recognized it as probably the best distillation of, of the preaching of the apostles. That's why it's called the Apostles' Creed. And, you know, there are newer statements of belief in more contemporary language. Um, there's ongoing reflections and books and podcasts and YouTube videos and all manner of, um, of Christian theological reflection. But there's something really stable and enduring about this creed. Um, it, it, like I said, it literally keeps us all on the same page. And it's not the final word on theology. It's not the, the, the greatest word on theology. It's... Um, there's lots that the creed doesn't do. The creed doesn't mention Israel at all. Um, the creed doesn't talk about the miracles of Jesus. It doesn't talk about the kingdom of God. The creed has, has absences, it's, so it's not the final word on theology. But it's a solid starting point. It's a solid starting point for our uh, exploration of Christian belief. And it gives us a, a common tongue, a, a lingua franca, a, a way of talking about theology that, that we can all share. And then we get to the kind of final, I think the final big relevancy question of, of the creed and of this whole task of theology, which is, um, yeah, like I said, how do we, how do we, how relevant is a creed when we say I believe to something that we don't fully understand? And when I introduced this series last year, I talked about the way that the creed is, is not just informative, it's not just information about God, but it's actually performative. It's something that, that we speak. It's something that is part of worship, actually. And so in a sense, it's, it's more sacramental than instructional. It's something that has um, a transformative effect on us as we speak it, as we, as we read it. It's not magic, but it's something that, that, that kind of brings us into contact with grace, I think. And this is because when we say, I believe, I think something, something new is brought into being. It's a speech act, something like when a judge says not guilty or um, that, that utterance changes the course of someone's life. That utterance changes the whole story of that situation. So it's a speech act which transforms. Or like a wedding vow when someone says I do or when someone makes a vow at, at, in, a, in a marriage ceremony, they, they speak a word in good faith without really knowing 
what that promise will even mean, <laughs> without even understanding what they're saying. And yet they say it with, with sincerity and truth. And it changes something. So, uh, so it's very much that way with our faith. This confession of faith follows this pattern. And if we think about it, it's a pattern that really, we're really familiar with. Like when you get in your car, you just believe that it's going to work. You just believe that it's, that it's been built well. You don't need to be an automotive engineer. Um, you don't need to understand all the ins and outs of, of mechanics. You just make a faith decision to, to believe that this is a well-made car. Or when you come into a building like this, you make a faith decision to believe that it's been well-built. You don't have to be an expert in civil engineering because you make a, a faith belief. You come into the building with belief and you find understanding. And that's how so much of our life works. We can't verify or observe everything in the creed, uh, some, you know, but we take subsequent steps. We take first steps and subsequent steps into the faith. And as we take steps, we begin to see that, we begin to see the world through God's eyes. We begin to adopt um, the realities that the creed give us and experience God's goodness. And we see, we, we begin to see that God is at work in the world, as the creed says. So, so naturally, with this, with theology, we could go on and on and on, which we can't do. We, we have to move on. We have to, there's many other topics which we need to cover for a balanced diet as a church. Um, other parts of scripture that we need to look at together, and that's what we'll be doing. So this is kind of rounding off our series this morning. And also, you know, just a little heads up as we approach, you know, we're sort of in the, 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 the Easter tide, the kind of after Easter season, and we're looking forward to Pentecost, which is coming up in May. And so we want to give some space to, to reflecting on Pentecost and reflecting on what Pentecost is about, reflecting on the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit's work in the church and in us. So that's going to be lots of fun. But with the time remaining, I'm just going to, I, I just want to tag almost uh, on the back of some of what Pete was sharing last week, which was brilliant um, teaching on resurrection and the big picture consequence of and implications of, of Jesus raising us and um, what resurrection life means. So I want to talk a little bit more about that, um, about this idea of of the world without end or, or everlasting life. And I suspect that I was talking to Sarah on the way into the this morning, but you know, asking her like what she was saying, what are you what are you talking about this morning? And I said, talking about everlasting life. And she said, Oh, okay. And I said, um <laughs> I said, Would you like to live forever? And she was like, um hmm. <laughs> That's a yeah, not not sure. Actually, I think when we really pause and ask ourselves, to, would you want to live forever? That that's a long time. Um, might get boring, might get tiring. Um, and I think we you know we we recognise that that a life without a limit would almost uh, uh, we would lose something. It would mess with our sense of time. It would mess with our sense of our even our humanity if if life just was endless. Um, this endless duration. And we see this lots, I guess, um, in books and stuff. There's lots of uh, books about miserable vampires who, who can't die. They just <laughs> float around. Um, you know, they're always sad. They've always got some something tormenting them because they just can't die, you know. Um, this bleak and lonely, tortured existence. Or perhaps, you know, we might, if you've done your classics, you, um, you might have heard of the myth of Sisyphus who was a, a king who tried to cheat death and he received 
the punishment from the gods, and the punishment was that he was uh, sentenced to carry this boulder up, up a hill, and then it would roll back down, and then he would carry the boulder up the hill, and it would roll back down, and that, was, that would go on for eternity. So um, we might think of the myth of Sisyphus when we think about eternal, well, endless life. Um, or we might sort of think about some of the more contemporary ideas about endless life, some like the, the variety of Elon Musk, who believe that we can sort of upload our brains into computers and shoot them off in rockets out into space and that we'll live forever and ever in some kind of disembodied way. It's not just science fiction, it's people are actually putting lots of money into this, which is a bit scary. Or maybe we think of Bill Murray in his private hell on Groundhog Day, the day that goes on and on and on. Uh, if we're honest, <laughs> you know, I think we, we, some part of us has this fear, some part of us has this unease about the sense of uh, never-ending existence. It almost sounds like a punishment. The Argentine writer Borges wrote a story about a man who, who drinks from this river of immortality and becomes immortal. And, and as he does, he, he discovers that without death, life has no meaning. And so the rest of his life is spent wandering around uh, looking for this river, this fabled river, which will take Im immortality away. And so he drinks from every river and every stream looking for this, looking for this relief from this curse of endless life. So I think the message is pretty clear and it's pretty intuitive. We see it cropping up in culture all the time that there's a fear about this stuff. Um, the message is that life, like duration alone, doesn't make a good life. A long life doesn't mean a good life. Um, and it, life isn't made better just by stretching it out further and further and further. There's something else about life that's much more important than duration. And I think for John, uh, we probably, the, I think the creed lets us down in this way in that it talks about uh, life everlasting, when it should probably use John's language, which is abundant life or eternal life. Um, so abundant life in particular, I think, is a really particular John, uh, Johannine vision of, of eternal life. So for John, eternal life is about quality rather than duration. And this quality of life is something that for John, he, he suggests and he makes clear that we can experience eternal life already in the here and now when we keep close company with Jesus. Eternal life is in Christ. And I think this is the, the, you know, the true significance of, of such a world-famous verse like John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So, oh, fell off the slide, sorry. But, um, but be the, to believe in Christ means to have eternal life. Uh, there's no sense that that's something that we have to wait for. There's a sense that being with Christ is something that, that means eternal life can start with our belief. So for John, it was both the uh, belief in God was both the doorway and the pathway, and the destination of eternal life, of never-ending life. And John was the one who referred to himself as the beloved disciple. And I think he, he speaks from this identity of the beloved. And he his understanding of, of life is that um, eternal life is this state of being in the, in the presence of the one who loves us. Um, this life of intimacy with Jesus. And John vouches from it, from his own experience. 
that this this is the deep life. This is the true life, is life with God, um, and it's available to us right now. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, not will have, but has eternal life. Or anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Not one day will have, but has eternal life. So John doesn't really um, qualify what eternal life is. He, he doesn't really describe its nature, except that it resides in Jesus. Whatever it is, it's with Jesus, who's the source of abundant life. And in his, his short letter, he writes... Um, he writes, to, he refers to Jesus himself as the eternal life. So he refers to Jesus as eternal life, not just someone who has it, but the eternal life. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you that we have seen and heard, so that you may also have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So John's eyewitness testimony of his time with Jesus is centered on his experience in a way that's qualitatively different to anything he'd experienced before. The only word he could use to describe what it was like being with Jesus was eternal life. Life without borders, life without an end. Life outside the bounds of, of time and space. And uh, for the romantics in the room, you know, love, love is a bit like that, isn't it? If you've ever fallen in love, if you've ever been head over heels for somebody, uh, those early days of a relationship can feel dizzy with love. You know, you can feel lost in love. Everything else seems to just fade away in the in the face of the beloved. Um, all our practical concerns, all of the stuff we need to get done, um, it just seem trivial. It doesn't matter anymore. We somehow have the superhuman strength to just text all night long, or write these long emails, or, or you know talk on the phone for hours and hours and hours. Everyone around us is going, "What the heck?" <laughs> Annoying everyone, but it's you know it's this is what love is. It's this thing which grips us, or even you know the birth of a child can be a bit like that too. You just all of a sudden time and its borders get fuzzy, and everything everything focuses on this this new life. So it reminds me of the words of uh, the poet and the Song of Solomon: "Set me as a seal upon thine heart, and set and a seal upon thine arm, for love is as strong as death." That that kind of love, you know, the kind of love at which death seems not that big a deal, because love is so strong, love is so big, love is so all-encompassing. And yet, you know, for those in, who have fallen in love, um, we also know that it that it kind of there's a come down, you know, there's there's a there's a reality check at some point when our boss is texting us saying, "Where are you?" or <laughs> It's not just that, but you know, uh, we we realise that the the call of responsibility, the call of other things, of of, of work, of, of family, of community, begin to kind of re encroach themselves upon us. Um, and like all things, this this sense of love passes; it fades. This is this is what even shows us that love itself can be fragile; it can be fleeting. 
like all things under the sun. But perhaps there's a sign in there for us in this metaphor of love, in this metaphor of love and eternal life, that we can have these moments in life which feel eternal, um, even for a moment. Perhaps uh, life with God is like that. Perhaps eternal life is like being lost in love. This intense experience of love, but without the shadow of death behind it, without temporal dimensions behind it, the sense that it goes on and on without decay. And I think this tracks again with John's uh, recollection of Jesus. We think about Jesus' words to Mary and Martha when their brother had died. And they're living in the, in the throes of death. They're living in the, under the shadow of death. Death's presence is really all over them. But in the face of Jesus, um, it, it, it's, well, in, in Jesus' company, Jesus says, am I bigger than death? His words to, to the sisters is, um, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. I remember hearing these words at my um, grandpa's funeral and being really, finding them quite strange, quite hard to comprehend. You know, in the, in the, in the presence of a funeral to hear this um, was strange. But then in the presence of Jesus, in the face of Jesus, they, I think they make sense. And in the Lazarus story, we realize that when Jesus is saying, I am the resurrection, that the presence of death, the presence of the power of death becomes small in the face of Jesus and in the presence of Jesus. When we find ourselves in God's presence, when we stand in the company of Jesus, we're standing in the company of life, life itself, the source of life. So not even death can sever that relationship. Not even death features in that moment when we're face to face with Jesus. Um, great saints like St. Francis um, speak of death, I think in this way, as a friend. Death is a friend that tends the borders of our breath. Um, ultimately, it's a doorway that leads us deeper into knowing God. It leads us into a greater union with God. And so we can speak of it as a friend sometimes. It's not always a friend, um, but sometimes. Or as the early church father Irenaeus put it, you know, when we share in the life of God, death becomes so insignificant that we almost become forgetful about it. We, we forget about death. We forget it even exists. I think that might be a little bit of what John's talking about. Those who, even those who die, will live. Um, even though they die, they will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Will never die. Maybe that's what he's talking about. Wouldn't it be wonderful to experience this kind of life now? This um, disappearing into, into the face of God now? This is, this is available. This is not something we have to wait for. The love of God is, is here, is ready to be poured out. And um, so that's that's John's vision. We can we can pause and just let 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 our hearts open for a moment, just to welcome God's love, um, because His love is here. But in addition to that, you know, um, we also have we also have other visions of love, other visions of life in Scripture. We have 
the um, we have the other apostles, the other witnesses, Ma uh, Mark and Matthew and Luke, um, and their perspective. So these three gospel writers, they talk about uh, the kingdom of God much more than life. They talk about the kingdom of God as their expression of what eternal life means. And they're not writing in contradiction to John. They're not, um, they're not out of step with John. They're just seeing it from a different angle. Their eye is more oriented towards the future promises of, of life when the rule of God will be made complete. And until then, we, we sort of live in a state of tension where, where we're experiencing God's good ordering of things. Um, we're experiencing it in part, here and now. And yet we're also yearning for, for more. We're yearning for um, restoration. We're, we're yearning for the fullness of, being, of seeing God's order realized here. And it's vital, you know, we are people that hold this tension. That's what defines us. That's what makes us who we are as Christians, that we live with one foot in the future and one foot in the present. And our hope is um, not about disappearing from earth and flying away to heaven. Our, our hope is in the marriage of heaven and earth. It's in the, the, the bringing together of these two realities. Um, this is the plain biblical teaching. It's been lost, I think, in a lot of fuzzy, um, sentimental images of the afterlife with clouds and harps and halos. But the best kept secret of the Bible, which is right there, um, is that it's a holistic vision of, of God's intent to redeem the whole of creation, all of it. Um, Peter, the apostle, writes, we're looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Um, or Isaiah long before Peter prophesied this. He saw a vision of his beloved city, Jerusalem. He saw a picture of Jerusalem being recreated as, it, as, as the new heavens and the new earth were rolled out. And he says, The former things will not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I am creating, for I am about to create Jerusalem as a joy and its people as a delight. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and delight in my people. No more shall the sound of weeping be heard in it, or the cry of distress. So, in short, Isaiah is uh, looking ahead to this moment when heaven and earth marry, you know, when, when we have this overlap between heaven and earth, when a new heaven and a new earth, when God makes his home among his creation. That's what we also yearn for. It's the same thing that John's talking about, eternal life, the kingdom of God. And the picture is that we'll live in a city, a city like this perhaps, a city where God's home is here, where he resides here, where we are in living our lives in the light of his presence and fulfilling the great calling that we have to be his, to be his people, to be bringing order and beauty out of creation, not just to be um, sitting around with endless expanse of time in front of us, but actually to be busy to be working, to be making. It's like uh, God's set up the world as an artist's studio. It's full of paint and paintbrushes and clay, and he says, make stuff, you know? He's given us creation to make and to beautify and, and to bring out good life and good order. This is the destiny. This is, this is eternal life. This is the life everlasting. So going back to what I was saying earlier, this I think this theology changes everything. I think if we can, if this theology can really grip our hearts, if it can really grip our minds, it will change everything about the way we live. 
when we say, I believe in the life everlasting, we speak out a truth that's bigger than we can grasp, true, but we, it'll steer us into the company of Jesus. It'll steer us into the source of where true life is, to be beheld by God. Um, and, and it'll steer us through death, uh, through the fear of death, and into resurrection and dwelling forever in new creation. So this is not something, this sort of is not theology that we just roll out on a Sunday and then get back to the real world of, of jobs and family and stuff. This is the theology that has to get under our skin because it shapes all of our work. It shapes everything we do. It's not sort of, yeah, it's not in some mental compartment labeled afterlife. It's a, an invitation to begin now, to begin eternal life now. So what we do with our lives today, this afternoon, um, what we do with our thoughts, with our minds and our hearts and our bodies today, tomorrow, and for the rest of the week, in the name of the Lord, will we'll have an eternal ripple. It will have eternal longevity. Um, it's not in vain. Our work is not toil that has no meaning. Or to quote uh, Tom Wright, just to, just to finish a big quote, but a good one. He says, you're not oiling the wheels of a machine that's about to roll over a cliff. You are not restoring a great painting that's shortly going to be thrown on the fire. You are not planting roses in a garden that's about to be dug up for a building site. You are accomplishing something that will become, in due course, part of God's new world. Every act of love gratitude and kindness, every work of art or music inspired by the love of God and delight in the beauty of his creation, every act of care and nurture, of comfort and support for one's fellow human beings, and for that matter, one's fellow non-human creatures, and of course, every prayer, all spirit-led teaching, every deed that spreads the gospel, builds up the church embraces and embodies holiness rather than corruption and make the name of Jesus honored in the world. All of this will find its way through the resurrecting power of God into the new creation that God will one day make.